Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors. I'm part of our preaching team, and uh, it's awesome to be here uh, with you guys, to be back home. I bring you some greetings from Redemption Flagstaff. That's where I was last week. Had the chance to preach up there. Uh, you know, Redemption is uh, 10 congregations across Arizona, and Redemption Flagstaff meets at Coconino High School there, and uh, just was cool to be there and to encourage them and to, um, you know, it's fun. It's they're preaching through Colossians. We're preaching through Colossians. It's just kind of uh, feels like we're kind of all in this thing together, but they give you their greetings and uh, their appreciation, and it's, uh, it's great to be home. Uh, today's message is titled, The Music of Marriage. The Music of Marriage. We're talking about marriage in light of those verses that we just read. Uh, I've been married to Molly for just over 20 years. We celebrated our anniversary in December. And when I think back to even just the very beginning of our marriage, like literally within the first few days of our marriage, I realized that we were different from lots of other couples. We uh, got married in Toledo, Ohio, and then went and did a honeymoon in Cancun. We had booked this resort um, where they pick you up at the airport, and it's kind of an all-inclusive thing. And, and so we get picked up. We're in this little shuttle van to go from the airport to the resort. And in that van is another couple that we discovered had just gotten married on the exact same day as us, Terry and Carrie from Louisville, Kentucky, Terry and Carrie. And there they were. And they, you know, they, we were, I don't know, probably like in our like Illinois sweats or something. They were like dressed up nice, you know, like they just come from Churchill Downs or something. And uh, Terry and Carrie, they're in the thing. And, and so we, we get to the resort and we're both kind of checking in at this big front desk at the same time. And they give us keys to our rooms and we're walking and we're like, why are Terry and Carrie following us? And we realized that our hotel rooms were like next door to each other. I don't know if it was just like the honeymoon wing of the resort or what, but it's like, man, we just spent all this time getting to know Terry and Carrie in the, in the van, and now Terry and Carrie are right next door. And uh, every day, we would just keep bumping into Terry and Carrie. And usually what was happening is, you know, I was in my senior year of uh, playing baseball at the University of Illinois, and so I was kind of gearing up for my senior season. And so uh, Molly and I, pretty much every day, we would, you know, get up and we'd go work out, which we like to do. And then we'd be on the tennis court or a couple of tennis courts, like doing long toss with each other, um, you know, while Terry and Carrie are, oh, we're, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're going deep sea fishing. Oh, have fun, Terry and Carrie. And then the next day, oh, where, where are you guys headed? Oh, we're headed into the market. Oh, oh, have fun, Terry and Carrie. And we just realized like our idea of a good time is play catch and drink, you know, what is it? Pina coladas. Yeah, that was our idea. And sit on the beach. Like, that's what we wanted to do. Terry and Carrie were out changing the world or having a great time or I don't know what. And so we would, like, by a couple of days later, we'd be into and be like, I wonder what Terry and Carrie are doing today, you know? And, and even as I stand here now, I think, I wonder what Terry and Carrie are doing today, you know? But we just kind of realized, you know, we're, we're different, I guess. And, and as I've, you know, over the last 20 years, I've met lots of different married people and you realize people are different. Marriages are different, couples are different, different interests, different hobbies, different dynamics, all sorts of different things. And so in light of that difference, I think it's really interesting and maybe even actually really wise that the Bible says very little in terms of specific instructions about marriage. Isn't that interesting? I mean, this is something that's so important. Uh, the Bible does say in Ephesians 5 that marriage kind of images the relationship that God has with his people through Jesus and the church. But there's very little like direct instruction about it. It's pretty broad. And I wonder if maybe the reason is because God knows like people are different. And so maybe it is that we need like kind of big picture principles. We need maybe a big picture vision rather than like every moment instructions on how to do marriage. And so that's kind of what I want to try to give us today from these uh, few verses. There's not much here. Wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's the text. That's all this Colossians book says about marriage, nothing else. He just moves on. Next week's parenting. It's equally short. It's, it's kind of big picture. It's kind of, let me give you the, the vision. Let me give you the feel for what marriage ought to be like. And what you see as you kind of read through this whole section is that everything Paul's talking about is resisting selfishness. Selfishness is a huge enemy of marriage. Unless, of course, you decide to do what I have just recently been learning about, which is called sologamy. Sologamy. I'm not making that up. That's a real word, sologamy. You've heard of monogamy. Well, sologamy is like that, but instead of marrying another person, being committed to them, you just marry yourself. It's a real thing. Here's an article from ABC News. By all accounts, Erica Anderson's wedding was perfect. I was on cloud nine. It was just delightful, she said. She had the white dress, the ring, the vows, all the accoutrements of a traditional wedding. The only thing missing was the groom. For the 36-year-old, tying the knot was about making a formal commitment to the love of her life herself. I've been told that I'm a great catch, and today I am catching myself, she said. This is called sologamy, and you're like, no, you're making that up. Nope, I've got a picture. Here's a real picture where friends were invited, and friends came. I just like that. I'm kind of imagining, I'm imagining getting an invitation. Be like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to be coming to your insanity party, right? Like, what in the world? Like, you hear this, and you're like, I wasn't looking for more evidence that we've just lost our minds, but apparently there's more evidence. Here it is. And it's this trend, right? They're like people who can help you do your uh, sologamy weddings to yourself. Right? We hear that and we just go like, that is nuts. But you know what? I appreciate her honesty. Because here here's what she's saying. She's going, the only person I've ever really been committed to is myself. And at least she has the guts to say it. Whereas lots of people who end up in monogamy, they end up in marriage, they end up saying, hey, I'm committed to you for the rest of my life. The reality is they're just committed to themselves. You're in a marriage, you're in a monogamy, you're living like a sologamy. I don't even, just, yeah, like. But, but let's just think about that for, for a moment, right? Like, it, what it shows us is like, we think maybe the biggest problem in our marriage is our spouse, or it's our circumstance, or it's our financial situation, or it's how exhausted we all are as we're trying to take care of kids, or it's, but what if the biggest challenge in your marriage is actually your selfishness? So this is not a moment to kind of elbow your spouse and say, see, honey, listen up. It's a moment to kind of elbow yourself. All right, listen up. Because that's, that's been kind of the whole theme of chapter 3, right? In, in, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is saying Jesus is Lord over everything. Jesus is supreme in all areas of life. And then he starts to apply it in chapter 3 by saying, I want you to focus on Jesus. I want you to fix your mind on him. And then what that's going to look like is that you start to live into your true identity. Your true identity is that you're a new creation in Christ. Your true identity is that you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus, his beloved son. And you've been, you, you now have this new self, this new reality. And Paul has said in chapter three, now live into that new you. He says, here's what it looks like. You got to take some things off. You got to put some things away. You got to put some things to death, 
right? A lot of times we sort of view uh, sin as like this kind of roly-poly that we're kind of comfortable keeping in our house. Sin's a scorpion. You kill it. Paul says you got to kill some stuff. you got to kill all these sexual sins, he says in verse 5. In verse 8, he talks about all these rage sins that you have to kill. In verse 11, he talks about this tendency in us to, to tribalize. And he says you got to get rid of that. The, the new self is who you are. It's being renewed in the image of its creator, it says in verse 10. Christ is all and is in all. What he's saying is, hey, there's all this selfishness in you. It's the selfishness that sins sexually to get what you want. It's the selfishness that looks like anger and rage when people get in the way of what you want. It's the selfishness that decides to decide, here's who's in, here's who's out based on my preferences. He says, you got to get rid of that. That's selfishness. That's not how you're going to relate in a healthy way. But you got to put something on, right? Like there's times for uh, Hank, our son who's five, uh, he'll sometimes, we'll go, hey, buddy, go get dressed for church. And we don't typically pick out his clothes for him. So he'll sometimes come out and it's like, dude, you look like you're ready to go play in the mud. You can't wear that to church. Go take that off. And when we say go take that off, we don't mean take it off and let's go to church naked. What we mean is, hey, take off. Those clothes aren't appropriate. Those aren't, clothes aren't fitting put, and put on the new ones, right? And that's what Paul's saying. Hey, take all that stuff off. That's selfishness stuff. Take that off. And here's what I want you to put on. Just look at this again in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Because here's who you really are. God really loves you. Put this on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, being filled with gratitude, right? This picture that he's saying, he's saying, hey, put off all that selfishness and put on warmth, generosity, selflessness, deference, listening, caring, He's going like, that's how you're supposed to relate. So then, keep this in mind. This then is really important that we remember that that's the whole feel of everything he's talking about when we get to verses 18 and 19. If you look at verses 18 and 19, and especially verse 18, without that context, you will misunderstand it. But if you understand it with that context, I think you begin to actually see, okay, here's what a marriage, a marriage should feel a lot like all those other relationships where selfishness goes to die and warmth and generosity and compassion thrives. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at uh, what what does a Christian marriage look like? But even more, get this, we want to ask the question, what does a Christian marriage feel like? What does it look like? What does this text say? We'll look at that. But then we'll talk about what is it it supposed to feel like? So that's where we're going with this. We're committed as a church to marriage, to investing in marriages, to helping marriages thrive. We have uh, folks who lead a premarital group. So if you're going through any kind of uh, premarital experience, you're thinking about getting married or you're engaged, we would love to have you go through that premarital process to help you. I mean, just statistics overwhelmingly say that couples who go through a premarital counseling process do better. 
So we have that. Uh, we have a marriage collective, which is for folks who have been married uh, five years or less, and they get together about once a month and just build relationships and care for each other and invest in those marriages. There's another thing we do a couple times a year called Road to Intimacy. It's a couple month long class um, led by some experienced couples. And what they do is they kind of walk you through how to build intimacy, how to build closeness and oneness in your marriages. We do that a few times a year. We offer biblical counseling for people who are hitting snags and going, hey, there's these things that I'm bumping up into and I need help and I want to look into this. We offer abuse advocacy. We have a number of people who have been trained and are being even more trained and having more and more experience with coming into marriage situations where it's not just a difficult marriage, it's actually an abusive one, and to advocating for you and helping you figure out kind of the legal options and the path to get out of that abuse. Sometimes marriages end, and so we have divorce recovery groups. So there's a lot here that we, I mean, this is close to the heart of God. It's a, it's a big deal when you think about just the quality of life. And it's a big deal for our witness to the world. So we, we care about this here, and that's why we want to spend some time to kind of think about this. Now, I'm aware that not all of you are married. Some of you, many of you are married. Some of you are not married, and you'd like to be. Some of you are not married, and you're thrilled you're not married. Some of you used to be married, and your marriage ended either through divorce or maybe through a death. And you're navigating those different dynamics. I realize we're not all in the same place, but, but marriage, whether it's the marriages that we came from or the marriages that we are in or used to be in or are going to go into, this just is a big deal. So we want to try to get a sense for how does this feel. So let's pray. Let's ask God's help. Uh, Father, we uh, invite you now to lead us. Lord, we invite you to be the voice that we hear as we try to understand uh, what Paul's saying in this text, what you're saying to us through him. And God, even more, we pray that you'd give us a vision for it that uh, reminds us of just your care and your provision. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bible, look at it again. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This word submit means to arrange under, to put oneself under another. And uh, this is important. It's a voluntary kind of word. It's uh, actually in the Greek, I don't go into this a lot, but it's what's called a middle voice. So in Greek, there's, 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 uh, there's active voice, middle voice, passive voice. Active voice would say that the subject is doing this. The passive voice would say the subject of the sentence, it's having it done to them. The middle voice is the subject is doing it to themselves. So get this. This is Paul saying, wives, submit yourselves to your husband. Get this. He's not saying, hey, wives, you already know you're lower, right? We'll act like it. No, the biblical vision of manhood and womanhood is that we are co-equal image bearers of God, that we are equal. There's not a rank here. Men aren't more like the image of God than women. There's an equality. And so what Paul's doing is saying, hey, but in this relationship, what I want you to do, wives, is I want you to submit yourself to your husbands. Now, this idea of submission, it kind of rattles us a little bit, but it's actually all over the Bible. And get this, you can't be a Christian unless submission is part of your life. It's part of Jesus's life. 
says in Luke chapter 2, verse 51, Jesus submitted to his parents. In Luke 22, Jesus submitted to the Father in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. In Romans 13, Christians, all Christians are called to submit, that's the same word that's used, to the governing authorities. In Hebrews 13, the church is called to submit to its leaders. And in Ephesians 5.21, which is a parallel passage to Colossians 3, Paul says, hey, I want you to be filled with the Spirit, singing, making melody, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this, this putting yourself under other people is a normal pattern of behavior for all Christians. And in the marriage relationship, what Paul's saying is, hey, wives, that's the posture I want you to take. Now, this has been uh, abused in so many horrible ways. So it's important to clarify, well, what does submission not mean? Okay, here's seven things that submission does not mean. Submission does not mean that a wife must treat her husband as the ultimate authority. He's not. Who is? Class. This is where you get to use your Sunday school answer. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is. Jesus is the ultimate authority, not your husband. Submission does not mean that a wife is less capable than her husband. Do I hear an amen from the men, hopefully? Like, I mean, I outputted my coverage by a long way. Molly is so capable at so many different things. If I thought, hey, you know, the reason that she is called to submit is because well, I'm clearly better. I'm clearly dumber if I think that. Number three, uh, it doesn't mean that a wife should be silent or not consulted. It doesn't mean that a wife shouldn't make decisions for the marriage or the family. It doesn't mean that a wife must run every decision by her husband. It doesn't mean that a wife must obey her husband's command to sin. And it doesn't mean that a wife shouldn't speak up when her husband is sinning or being destructive. Now, that's what a lot of people think it does mean. Well, submission means you're lower. Submission means you don't talk. Submission means you run everything by me. Submission means you do everything the way I want to do, even if it makes you wildly uncomfortable. Submission means you do everything that I do, want you to do, even if it's sin. And here's what I want to tell you. If all you had was verse 18, and you didn't have the rest of the chapter, I could see maybe how you'd get there. But think about it in the whole chapter. Right? You have to ignore verses 5 to 17 if that's your picture of what submission is. You just got to throw it out. But the picture of, of godliness, the picture of Christian character, the picture of the life that we're called to have is we're putting off sexual greed. We're putting off malice and anger and control and rage. We're putting those things off. And we're putting on compassion and othersness and generosity. That's what we're doing. Well, in light of that, of, of course, submission doesn't mean those things. If you want more on this, uh, Seth uh, Trout, when we preached through the, the book of Ephesians, he wrote a really good article. We've republished it on our website uh, called, uh, When Should Wives Resist Their Husband's Leadership? There actually are some times when you should, and he goes into that. So it's, it's this disposition. That, that, that's, I think, the key thing. I think so many times we think about submit being about a moment, when it's really about a disposition. And maybe it's because the image that comes to our mind, like I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word submit. For a lot of us, it's like we picture the MMA fight where someone's in a headlock and they tap out and the other person goes, yeah. Well, listen, if that's your image of submit, of course you're gonna have a problem with this. 
But, so, so I'm going to give you a new image here in a little bit. But, but for now, what I want to say is like, this is a, this is a disposition. Here, here's how I wrote it. And I ran this by Molly. I said, is this how you would describe this? I said, submission is a heart disposition that wants to champion, support, hold up, make look good, esteem. It, it's, it's looking at a husband, seeing gaps, not trying to point out all the gaps, but trying to compliment the gaps. It's generous. It's humble. See, here's the problem. We think about a wife submitting, and we think of moments. And it's not that. It's an attitude. It's a demeanor. Like, I can barely think of moments when I feel like Molly's submitted to me because she's always living with this kind of godly character. It's not about her. Submit to your husbands. That's important. This doesn't say women submit to men. Do I hear an amen for that? This doesn't say uh, wives be subject to all husbands. No, no, this is the relationship you have with, with your husband as is fitting in the Lord, it says. That means it's appropriate. And, and this is part of a Christian marriage. This isn't just Paul importing kind of first century norms. This is him saying like, hey, this is, this is appropriate in light of this whole dynamic of Christian relationships from chapter three. So that's what the text says in verse 18 about wives. What about verse 19 about husbands? It says, husbands, love your wives. And do not be harsh with them. I've heard a lot of people get frustrated about verse 18. I've never heard anyone get frustrated about verse 19. What does this word love mean? It means to have great affection or care for or loyalty towards, to cherish, to have warm regard. It's the Greek word agape, which is the word that's often used in the Bible to describe unconditional love, sacrificial love. It's the love that Jesus died with. Right? The parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for her. He sacrificed himself for her. And so there's this reality that, that wives are supposed to submit themselves to their husbands, and husbands are supposed to die for their wives. Now, when you really think about that, you go, that's hard. This is revolutionary when you put it in the first century. Because in the first century, wives were practically like property. Uh, husbands were clearly like the ruler of the household. Here's what Aristotle said as related to the relationship between rulers and subjects. He said, it is the part of a ruler to be loved, not to love. So that's the paradigm that, that all these people in Colossae have. Hey, if I'm a husband, I don't have to, your job, woman's to love me. Paul goes, no, 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 I'm going to turn this whole thing upside down and go, husbands, love your Wives, cherish them, regard them, consider them. What would they want? Right, uh, consider her interests, right? This is, I, I think it's funny, in Christmas time, you know, they start showing the, the Lexus ads where there's, you know, these cars that pull up in the driveway, you know, and the snow's falling, and of course that's never going to happen here. Um, and the, the Lexus is there with the big bow, and uh, I've thought before, what would happen if I tried to do that for Molly? She would kill me. Like, you know, look what I got for you. She'd be like, you bought a $60,000 car without consulting me? Are you kidding me? 
Like, and you did that because you love me? No, if you love me, you'd think about what I want. If you love me, you'd run it by me. If you love me, you just wouldn't go off on your own directing our whole family's future without any input from me. Husbands, love your wives. Care for them. Consider them. Sacrifice for them. And then what he says is, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The, the word do not be harsh means to make something sharp or bitter to the taste. Don't treat them with sharpness. Don't treat them with bitterness. Don't create bitter, sharp, sour taste in the marriage. And one of the main ways we do that is, is with our words, right? It's like the, you know, I mean, so, some of us, we're, we're witty, we're quick, we're sarcastic, we're funny, Right, like the, the guy that thought he was being funny when his wife said, hey, uh, honey, I, I just, I feel like I'm really ugly right now. Could you give me a compliment? And he said, well, babe, at least your eyesight is good. Right. And he goes, no, 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 I'm just joking, just joking, just joking. Right, how often do we do that? Yet you know, the damage is done. Proverbs 12, 18 says, there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Or Proverbs 26, 18 and 19, like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. Now, now pause for a second. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death. What is that? That is the ancient world's description of a mass shooting. Right? We watch these mass shootings in horror. And think, what is wrong with these people? These are monsters. Solomon, the wisest guy who's ever living, is saying, hey, when you're constantly jabbing, go, hey, I'm just kidding. Hey, I'm just kidding. Hey, I'm just kidding. You're like a mass shooter. It's incredibly damaging. So Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Don't thrust that sword. Don't say, oh, I was only joking. And, and let me tell you this, guys, listen. If you are insisting verbally or implicitly saying, you need to submit to me, you are being harsh. The, the verb for her is not get submitted to your husband. And it ain't your job to submit her. This is not an MMA fight. This is a marriage. And as soon as you insist, you got to submit to me, you're already being harsh. In your, in your desire for her to obey, verse 13, 18, you're totally disregarding verse 19. So that's what it looks like. Wives submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. But I think the deeper question, because Molly and I have been asked so many times in the last 20 years, hey, what, is it, what does this kind of thing look like? And, and it's described in this kind of scientific way. Like, hey, can we analyze this? And I think a better question is, what is this supposed to feel like? Right, because if our image that pops in our head is like an MMA fight submit, we need a new image. Well, I think there's actually an image in this overall text that's worth considering. It's the image of music. What if a godly Christian marriage is less like science and it's more like music? Music. 
Look at all the music imagery. Look at it in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's a, there's a melody to this whole text. There's a richness. There's a beauty. There's the healing power of music kind of ringing through there. You see it again in verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There it is again, music. When we think harmony, we just think of like, you know, not war. (laughs) But he's saying like, what if love is actually the harmony that brings multiple sounds together? One of the pastors, Aaron Daly, who's actually preaching at summer camp, he's at Redemption Alhambra, in our preachers collective, where we get together with all the preachers from all 10 congregations, uh, he's got some musical background, and he was kind of talking, emphasizing this idea of harmony, and I started asking him questions, and so then I got here, and I started asking Matthew and Stephen and some of our musical folks, like, hey, tell me more about this imagery of harmony, because I actually, the more I've thought about it, I think this actually is the image. So I'm going to invite, invite these guys up. I don't know where they are, wherever they are. Come on up. Um, but we need to get out of this marriage is an MMA fight where one of us wins. And we need to get into, hey, marriage is, a, is harmony. And so I've invited these folks up. So I've got Matthew Brazelton and uh, Abby Reeves and Stephen Griffith. Give them a hand, everybody. So before we talk about harmony, I want to experience it. So will you guys help us experience some harmony? Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing. So, I mean, man, this is so fun because I, you guys know, I mean, I love music and I can kind of carry a melody, you know, but I can't do it. You sang a great song to Molly at Christmas time. Yeah, well, we don't need to talk about that. That's really great. Um, But I I just sort of listen to that and go like, golly, that is just so beautiful. So will you just describe for a moment, like what what was happening? What what did we, what were you doing? What were you doing? What were you guys doing? Singing. (laughs) Thank you. Great. I was singing the melody, which is the easiest thing to do, so. I was singing a higher octave, but a lower part, so I was just looking to fill the gaps where Stephen wasn't, Okay. I was told last service that my part was a third, okay. which is some sort of music theory, but it was sort of in between their notes. So you have some musical theory, yeah. and you just have kind of instinct and gut and whatever. So that's so jealous. So, but that's interesting to me because I think that means like, Hey, there's some people who like read all the books about marriage and there's some people who just kind of feel their way through it. And you know, that doesn't mean you can't have a great marriage. Right. So, so if we, if we see marriage as this kind of imagery of harmony as this imagery of marriage, Matthew, you've said for a long time that, um, one of the hardest things to do 
in the band is actually to be one of the singers doing harmony. Why is that? Yeah, when I, when I audition singers, I would always say, like, this is, I think this is one of the hardest roles, if not the hardest role in the band, because you have to be able to, to lead vocally and you have to be able to uh, maintain, like, your unique identity and sound while at the same time, like, conforming to and complementing the lead vocalist. So um, you can't disappear or you're not adding anything, but you can't, like, you can't be too far forward or else you detract from the, the main vocal line, which makes it a lot harder for, for people to follow along in the song. Yeah, so, so Abby, there's this listening, right? Like I, it, it, you guys have said, like you, you can't do harmony well unless you listen. No, absolutely not. And not just listening to the melody, but you're listening to the other harmony because something could sound good with just the melody alone, but when you add in a third harmony part, it, you have to go together um, and make that together. What's well, interesting, I was watching you two kind of like you were singing and you were kind of looking, yeah. right? There was this sense, which I'm kind of going like, what are, you, what are you looking for? Yeah, I mean, the person singing the melody typically sets the mood, the tempo, you know, all, all these things that make a song a song. And so often it's about following them and complimenting them. Um, you know, if they're being loud, you don't want to be soft. And if they're soft, you don't want to be loud. If they're happy, you don't want to be sad and okay. vice versa. So it's, it really all matters to follow that lead. So here, here's, why this, here's why this is profound. Most of the time in marriage, the, the MMA fighting is over who gets to sing the melody. When you read Colossians 3, you go, Jesus is singing the melody. Amen. We're both harmonizing. We don't sing the melody. Jesus is singing it. It's his life. Our life is hidden with his. We're, our new self is bound up with him. He's the melody line, right? So, so what you're saying is like there's this, if we were to think about it as it relates to marriage, it's this going like, hey, you are not going to have a, a harmony, beautiful marriage if you take your eyes and your ears off of Jesus. Like he's the melody line. He's the one. So congratulations, Matthew, on getting to be the, the Jesus a, figure. Yeah. This is not the first time, actually. Yeah, tell, 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 tell you, that story. Tell you a That's funny a good story. Josh Watt, who was a, used to be a pastor on staff here, now he leads Redemption North Mountain. Um, he has a son, his oldest son is named Elijah, and he's good friends with my son Judah. And one day after church, Elijah asked his dad, Josh, why does Judah's dad always get to be God? <laughs> and Josh is like, what are you talking about? Josh is like, he is not God. <laughs> I know him well. He's yeah. definitely not that. And, he's, and Elijah said, well, we always... He always stand on stage and we always sing to him every Sunday. <laughs> I thought that was pretty that funny. That is pretty funny. So, so, so you're the melody. And so, so in that picture, though, you, you're listening to the melody, but you also said, I'm, I'm also listening to the harmony yeah. and kind of trying to fill in, my, fill in gaps, make the whole thing sound beautiful. So, so Stephen, talk about this then. If you want to have harmony, you can't do everything you would want to do to make yourself as... Like, you're actually trying to highlight something else. Yeah, absolutely. So the melody singer is the leader. So whatever you're doing needs to fit well with what they're doing. It needs to blend kind of like a recipe. You don't want to have ingredients that totally throw off. Um, sometimes that's good. But so if you've got to, like, do all these American Idol, like, runs, not you're fly. not, it, like, you could be a star, but you can't do harmony well. Correct. Correct. Okay. Um, so tell, tell me this, Matthew, talk about this. It, what if... What if you're trying to do a three-part harmony, the melody's solid, yeah. but someone else is like way off. They, yeah. they can't sing it, or they're not singing it well, 
or they don't care really about it. And it like, and you're still trying to sing your harmony, but they're like off. What can you still do it? Yeah. So it definitely, that, that would definitely like taint the beauty of the, the picture you're trying to paint. Um, but you can like the melody singer can still sing the melody and the other harmony, uh, vocalist can still sing their part uh it would just like it would create more of a dissonant sound than you would hope for um i've actually been in situations where some one person will be off but the other two are so strong that they'll actually pull that person back into the chord that they're trying to form and that's kind of a cool thing too so, so but, but, it definitely if, makes but it if they're way off it's it's harder oh yeah it's way what off. do you have to do to like go, okay, I'm still going to sing the harmony well. Yeah, you just got to really, really focus on the melody. You just got to, I mean, so to your analogy, I mean, it's Are we tracking, right? gang? Because here's the thing, I, I know some of you, you're, you're in a spot where your spouse is off. Maybe they're not singing at all. Maybe they're singing a different song or it's in a different key yeah. or it's a different thing. And uh, that's hard. But I hear that and go like, but you can still sing beautifully, right? Some of you, you're, you're single or you're widowed or you're divorced. And you go, well, what does this mean for me? You can still make harmony. You're still part of this. Now, it's a different thing, I guess, if a spouse is singing off and covering your mouth, yeah. right? Going like, you can't sing at all. I'm shutting you down, right? That's now where we start to call that like oppression and abuse. And, and that's where you need maybe to start pulling in you know, law enforcement and church leadership and, you know, bring some other things to bear, right? That's a different story. Um, but, but I think that's just really hopeful to go, you can still make the harmony, but man, you got to listen to the melody. You got to listen to Christ. You got to lean in. Yeah. Yeah. Another, I think just encouraging thing is that this is, this can be a learned skill. It, like there are people like Stephen who just come, come out of the womb dripping with musical ability. And then there are people like me who like, it took me 15 years to figure this out and I'm still not great at it, but, um, but I've seen progress and that's like really encouraging. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So how do you get better, Stephen? Right? Like, cause he goes, you're dripping with it. You know, I've been in the whole Reeves family singing, you know, all kinds of things. You're very musical, but harmony is like a, a thing you've had to kind of learn more. Well, I think that's part of why growing up in a musical household contributes to that. It's because I was listening to Peter, Paul, and Mary and Beach Boys like every day in the <laughs> car singing with my folks. Yeah. So I've had lots of reps since I was a little boy. Yeah. And so that's what it takes is just reps. Yeah. And Whereas you had a less musical home. Yeah. And you had to learn it. Yeah. yeah I, and I, I think that's an interesting parallel too, because some of you, a few of you grew up in a place where your parents did marriage great. And you're just walking in the footsteps, you know, you're kind of following the wake that they created. But a lot of us aren't in that spot. And you got to learn it and you got to keep going. You got to keep looking at Jesus, keep listening to Jesus, keep dialing into that melody. So now that we have a little even more appreciation, we just sing it one more time. Absolutely. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, his name forevermore for endless days we will sing your praise O Lord O Lord our God O Lord O Lord our God Amen 
Well, while they get set and the band comes up, and uh, we're going to actually uh, close the service by singing that song together. You can try out your harmony parts if you, uh, if you want to give that a run. But I, I, I just, I just want to say, like, I hope you feel the difference. Like, that's what marriage is supposed to feel like. It's not a tug of war. It's not a science experiment. It's not building an Ikea desk. <laughs> it's music. And, and, and it's hard, right? Over and over they said it's hard and, and you got to learn it. And you're gonna, which is why I just list, I mean, I listed out so many of the resources we're trying to provide because we realize it's hard. And a lot of times it doesn't sound real good. A lot of times it sounds like if I was trying to sing with these guys. But, but as we keep our eyes on Jesus, we put on the whole new life of warmth and generosity and selflessness that he gives us. Well, gosh, now marriage feels like pretty great. That's what we're going for. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for this picture. Thank you for how we see it in Christ. Then when we think of marriage and how marriage is supposed to be a picture of your love for the church, Lord, I just thank you how, how gentle you are, how lowly you are. That though you are in the form of God, you did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or fought for, but you emptied yourself. Took on the form of a servant and humbled yourself even to the point of death, death on a cross. And so Lord, that is our model. That is our example. And I pray, God, that as we move toward that, that we would experience the life and the blessing and the flourishing that comes with it. Lord, you and you alone are the melody line. You set it. And God, we want to fix our eyes on you and praise you. We do that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand. Let's sing.